Hi, and welcome to Kiskadi, where we explore women identified, gender nonconforming, and gender expensive communities across the Americas, and how we are creating a post pandemic future grounded in justice, abundance, and hope, and how you can be part of it. I am Bia Vieira, inviting you to join us in this journey and in action. So we are here, Anasa Troutman. I am just so excited to have this conversation with you, Anasa. <laughs> I'm always excited to talk to you, Bia, like every time. <laughs> I have learned so much from you. And oh, I want to tell you that you are the person who has taught me that centering love is something really important. Mm. And how we walk through the yes. world, centering love and thinking about a yes. better world or a, a world with justice and accountability, that that's very important. That makes me so happy. Thanks. <laughs> that just makes me so happy to hear you say that. I feel like my work here is done. I'm gone. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you for having me. <laughs> What else is there to say? Thanks, Anasa. <laughs> so, Anasa, oh, I yes. met you through my work with the Women's Foundation of California through the yes. Culture Change Fund. And yes. you are one of those people that have magic in terms of <laughs> thinking about how is it that we imagine the world that we want to be in, mm. What does it take? Mm -hmm. What's the power of imagination? And what mm -hmm. are the cultural strategies? What is it within our culture that allows us to do this yes. work? So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you got <laughs> to uh, where you are yeah. also in Memphis, literally yeah. where you are in Memphis, yeah. <laughs> and also yes. how you got to your work in community and culture. Mm. Yes. Wow. <laughs> How much time do you have? Well, <laughs> really, honestly, thank you again for saying all that. It's so, it's wonderful. I've been reflecting lately on my intentions in the world. And recently it's my intentions are starting to be reflected back to me in a really intense way. And I feel like it's so, so wonderful to understanding to know and to acknowledge being on your path and so I really really appreciate you saying those things to help me um verify and acknowledge that so thank you for that this really is a story um since birth <laughs> honestly I did not come to this work on my own I didn't make any of this up it really is how I was raised uh, I love this story my parents met in college and they were part of a group who like when the world was asking the question is it um, black power or civil rights their answer was like kind of both and kind of neither the real answer is culture and their community like the community I grew up in with them and all their friends who were like my second third and fourth parents like right we had a whole bunch of adults and a whole bunch of kids and what they did was built this West African cultural context for us. And so the way we dressed, all of our names are West African names. Um, it's like me, Anasa, my sister Nandi, Timba, Taiwo, like everybody had these beautiful African names. 
the way we gathered, the way we ate, the, all the things. Like I was eating carob and rice cakes as a treat when I was one years old because it was just like all about natural living and being in the community. Like that's how we were raised. And my mother was wow. an African dancer. My father was an African drummer and they had a dance troupe. And it was like all of the things were about expression and creativity and love and, um, you know, community politics, spirituality, all those things were one word, one conversation, one way of being in the way that I grew up. And so when I looked around <laughs> at the world, like, hey, wait a minute, the outside world is not like it is inside my house. <laughs> my natural right. response was to think about what I could do to bring the rest of the world in alignment to what was happening inside of my own community. And so beautiful. It is. It is. And I didn't know at the time how beautiful it actually was. And if I wish I did, because I would have held on a little bit tighter. But it really shaped me in a way that not only helped me to have a clear vision of the future, but it also helped me to know that whenever things got rough outside, whenever the dominant culture was trying to beat me down, I had a very cozy and warm subculture that was built in my family in my house that I could retreat to that told me that I'm important and I'm valuable because I'm black and because I'm a woman and not in spite of that fact so like that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much I never got that speech the speech I got was you're amazing and you can do anything that you want and I believed my parents when they told me that and oh that is so powerful I got here it is it is and then I have a natural love of the arts, you know, I was the kid who knew how to play the record player by myself at four, would stay up all night in middle school, listen to music and reading books. Like I've always had a, a love for, for storytelling. And so I guess those two things together is how I got here, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing journey. And I think it's also important the way you're centering, you know, your oh, yeah. family, your community, and also oh, your yeah. ancestors, because I have heard you speak yeah. about your ancestors and where you come from and your centering in that. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about your community right now Ooh. and Ooh, where you question. are. And this point in history mm -hmm. where everything is so intense and yeah. where what we're experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Intense is the right word. Um, it's interesting because I have a really um, sordid relationship with being in community. Interesting. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> I know, huh. right? I know. Um, for a couple reasons. One, I was the only child for the first nine years of my life. So I didn't have any siblings until I was, um, nine. And, but I also was always a part of my parents' community. So even, even outside of their friends who were, you know, who are extended family, my mother, um, was a law student and my father was a medical student after I was born. So I remember very clearly watching them be in community with the people that they were learning with and being um, an extension of that community. But then when I started to go into like the workforce, I 
always worked nationally. So I, I owned a record company and my first artists went platinum. And then I started to work in politics and my first campaign was a presidential campaign. And then, so it's like, Oh, well, nothing small with no, Anasa. No, if you're going to no. go, go big. <laughs> and by the way, Anasa's, one of Anasa's projects is the big we. Yes. And now I know where that comes from. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it was like, I spent 20 years almost like looking at, the country as a big giant thing from a political standpoint, a community standpoint, cultural standpoint, all those things. And I moved around a lot because I was like, well, time to go to LA. We have to work on this project. We've got to go to LA. Oh, got to work on this project. Got to go to Tennessee. Got to go here. So I never was anywhere long enough to be able to build community that was based around a geography. But at the same time, because I moved around so much, my friendships were very deep because I needed them to anchor me because I moved around so much. And so I ended up with a community of people that literally was all over the world, like deep friend, love, juicy, on top of love friendships. And so this now, I moved to Memphis in 20... I was like halfway moved here in 2017 and I moved here officially at the end of 2018. And this really the last three years has been a incredible journey for me to learn what it looks like and what it means for me to be in one place with no plans of leaving, connected to a body of work that's very connected to the history and story of the place. The folks who I'm working with have been here for generations. And that is a completely different experience than what I've had before. And it's something I think about a lot because when I look back on my ancestors, for generations, people were in the same place. And then, you know, we became upwardly mobile and my mm-hmm. parents decided, they made a decision like, oh, we're going to move to this town because the school system is this way. And there was no regard for like the ancestral or historical geography of the family. It was like about, it was all about the future. The planning and the decision making was all about the future. And so it's been interesting being grounded here in such a way that I understand that we must think about both the past and the future at the same time as we're thinking about the spaces that we're in, which I feel like is a new revelation for me. And to be able to also have to do the work of asking permission to be a part of a community because I walked in into Memphis in generations old communities and I had to say, I love what this feels like and can I please be a part of it because I want to be welcomed in because as you know, I'm not going to just go somewhere and just sit there. I want to go there and do something. (laughs) So Something big. So even learning, (laughs) right, right, probably. So even learning like who were the folks who had the right to tell me yes, right? Who were the folks that had the right history and context to be the ones to give me permission and... And, and even now, like having to navigate the intricacies of community here in Memphis, because it's a very, it's hard here. It's hard here. It's hard here. And as, as wonderful, it's as wonderful as it is hard. Let me not be dramatic. It's wonderful and it's hard at right. the same time. And like learning all those things when I've only been here for three years, it's, it's been an adventure to say the least. <laughs> it's been an adventure. Wow. That sounds amazing. <laughs> 
And I said, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the specific work that you're doing and how it relates to <sighs> culture and narrative yes. change, but also yes. a let's explore a little yes. bit the hardness of community because I think we can all oh, yeah, identify sure. with that. <laughs> oh, let's do it. Yeah. So it's really interesting because my work here in Memphis, like who I was as a cultural strategist is completely different than who I am now. And it's because of my time in Memphis. And I um, I moved here to co-write and produce a musical theater piece called Union the Musical, which is like so random, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I moved here because there's a building here that's called Claiborne Temple. And that building is the place where the sanitation worker strike of 1968 was organized. So f- folks who, that doesn't ring a bell for them. If you've ever seen the I Am A Man signs, those big iconic I Am A Man signs, those are the signs that were generated as a result of this campaign. If you've ever heard the name Reverend James Lowry, if you've heard the name Cornelia Crenshaw, if you were ever curious about why Martin Luther King was in Memphis when he was assassinated, all of that is wrapped up in the story of the sanitation worker strike that all happened inside historic Claiborne Temple. And so I moved here because the 50th anniversary of King's assassination, they had a big event called MLK 50. And the folks who owned the building wanted to be able to tell the story of what happened in the building as connected to King. And so I came and me and a whole bunch of awesome, wonderful artists wrote and produced this musical. While I was doing the research for the musical, because Memphis is like such a special place. If you've never been here, like Memphis is the most intense, amazing place I've ever lived. It is like the most innovative, creative, beautiful place ever. And there's a lot of poverty here. Memphis is 65% Black with a 40% poverty rate. Over half the kids are born into poverty. The literacy rate is through the roof. It's a hard place to be. And... um you know, there's a story of, you know, Mayor Loeb, who was the mayor at the time of the strike and the, all the work, sanitation workers and their interaction. But in my research, I discovered an article that's called Memphis Burning, and it told the story of the first Black millionaire, whose name is Robert Church. Wow. And he lived around the corner from Claiborne Temple. So his neighborhood is our neighborhood. And the story is that he was born a slave. His father was also his master, who was also mm-hmm. his commander in the wow. Confederate freaking army, <gasps> right? And I know the plot thickens. Yeah. Right? So how what happens? Hard. How, how, right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So the story is that the the Civil War happens. The Union Army, I mean, the Union Navy is coming down the Mississippi River, which is like so blew my mind. Just the fact of thinking about a Navy full of river boats going down the Mississippi River is a mind blowing image. But the story is that the Union's coming They're in this battle and Robert Church, who's that's his name. He's like, I'm either going to go down with this Confederate ship or I'm going to make a run for it and get my freedom. And he jumps off the boat, he gets to land, he ends up, you know, long story short, building this entire humongous real estate fortune in downtown Memphis. Wow. He's like Ida B. Wells's patron. He's W.C. Handy, who invented jazz music's patron. He he wow. founded Beale Street. Like he is, there is no Memphis without this man. He is Memphis. And 
a generation later, his son, Robert Church Jr., says, well, we got um, economic justice for Black people because they had this incredible, thriving neighborhood in our neighborhood, half Black, half white, professionals, artists, everything, everything that you ever wanted in a neighborhood. And a generation later, his son says, well, we're going to have political power now. And he gets into bed with a man named E.H. Crump. Long story short, there E.H. Crump ends up taking all of the family, all the legacy land, selling it to the federal government. And they built the second ever public housing project on that land. And then burned the man's house down, which is a whole nother dramatic story. But read the article anyway, full circle, the public housing that was built on his land was demolished the year that I moved to Memphis and given to a private developer and turned into like a gentrified neighborhood. And so like the connection between the church family, E.H. Crump, and the kind of the system that was built in Memphis around economics and Black folks and how that showed up in 1968, because they're really living in the same system, right? Mayor Loeb is just doing the same system. And then fast forwarding into 2018 at the time and while looking around at the neighborhood and saying, oh, this is the same, we're living in the same system that was created by E.H. Crump. We're, we're suffering from the same kind of loss, disinvestment, theft of land, so on and so forth. And it, and the conversation then became for me, not just about the restoration of historic Claiborne Temple as a physical space, but the restoration of Robert Church's dream and this vision of robust, safe, happy, abundant, creative community for Black people in Memphis. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't leave. I can't leave. I can't leave. And so I ended up through a whole another dramatic story, I ended up starting a new organization, raising some money and buying the building from the folks who owned it at the time who had hired me to do the show. And wow. what we something big, yeah, so a something new big, ownership but... of the building. <laughs> and so what's been happening is like to be able to connect the story of what happened in that space around the sanitation workers, which is an amazing story, to the future of economic health for Black people, not just in Memphis, but across the South, has me understanding, like, I spent 20 years cultivating this this language and this infrastructure around the, the use of storytelling and narrative to shift culture, but I never... I never pointed it anywhere. I always was offering it to other people, right? Because I developed the language, I developed the model, I developed the language, the cultural strategy, I developed all that in a fellowship that I was like, this is for the world. This is for the progressives. Yay, go use story, go forth and multiply. But it never occurred to me that I would actually point it towards something that became important to me. And so this story of Claiborne and the story of Memphis and my relationships in Memphis have me not just be um, a teacher or a thought leader anymore. It has me being a full-fledged practitioner, doing the work of telling stories, leveraging stories, and really pointing those stories towards the evolution of the of the culture, the economy, and to center poor Black people in the South. Because I don't think that we're going to make it any other way because we, especially as Black people, we need to return to the place of our wounding. We need to return back to the South. We need to uh, transform and to heal those wounds that started with the extraction of our labor, the terrorizing of our bodies, and the stealing of our of our wealth. And we have to restore that. And I think 
in my mind, Memphis is the perfect place to start that work because of the history, because it's where King was assassinated, because of the richness of the soil, because of the Mississippi River, because the first Black New England, Robert Church, it just all comes together in my mind in this really magnificent whirlwind. And that's why I'm here. And that's how it's changed me. Because now when I think about the ecosystem of work and storytelling I do in other places, it's all about the economy. Now, all I care about is economics. If you don't want to talk to me about the intersection of race, class, and militarism, I'm not interested. It's changed me. COVID was um, interesting for us because in some ways it was almost like we knew it was coming and we were prepared 100%. We were in the process, like we had just purchased a building probably three months before COVID happened. So we were closed because we had removed the windows. We were preparing for renovation. So we were already close to the public. So we weren't impacted at all that way. Um, Our staff was very small, again, because we were in transition. So really, I was the only full-time employee for almost a year. And so I just, instead of going to the office, I worked at my house. We did have a lot of shows that we had to cancel because we had been touring Union the Musical around the South. So we had to cancel several shows and we lost a, a bunch of money that way. But it wasn't it wasn't money that we were depending on to do other things. It was like, we'll make money from the shows and we'll pay for the shows. And so that was kind of a, a zero-sum game. The thing that really transformed was our, our community engagement work. There was a lot of broken trust and a lot of anguish and pain around the door. People who, when I came to Memphis, had not been in the building since March 28, 1968. And who said, I will never go back in that building again because it's too painful. And so we really were ramping up a body of work around healing and connecting and reassembling the Claiborne Temple family and um, had a really beautiful plan about, you know, while we were closed to be able to gather in people's home and to do storytelling and all this amazing stuff. And then COVID hit and we couldn't do any of that. And we ended up um, pivoting to go online and not sure if it was going to work. Like, how do you connect? How do you do story circles on Zoom? Is that even a thing? I had an amazing team of facilitators from Memphis and two of the folks who had worked on the musical. So they understood like the vision of the work. And we all came together and we figured out how to build community online. He had like 300 people sign up to come and do story circles on a Zoom call. It was crazy, but it worked. And people, you know, shared things that they were like, I've never said this in public. Multiple people crying every week, full disclosures every week, you know, new connections and relationships every week. And it was really encouraging to know that in a moment where everybody was so isolated that there was a way for us to come together in a really meaningful way and to be able to translate the power of story that happens that you think only happens when you're in sitting in circle in person to know that that actually transcends physical space and it's really not about that it's really just about the openness and the connection and the vulnerability and the transparency whatever the venue is was really like heartwarming and really empowering to me because it let me know that stories don't have barriers. Like it doesn't matter. Like no matter what happens, you tell the story, just open your mouth and let the truth come out. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. And the connection can be there. And that was life-changing for me. Wow. It is such a process of transformation, both about your work, but you personally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
it's so clear about how it mm. you are uh, like your body is connected <laughs> yes. to what you're doing. Yes. And- it is. And it's such a new feeling, Bia. It's such a new feeling. And it's changing like I don't know, it's like it's making me rethink a lot of things. I, like when your body changes because you're in a space, it makes you rethink home. It makes you rethink family. It makes you rethink travel. I'm like, I don't want to get on the plane once a week anymore. I want to be here. I want to be right here with these folks who I'm building with. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen next. Wow. I don't know. Well, I do know that whatever happens next, I want to be yes. part of it. Bia, <laughs> <laughs> you can be a part of anything. I mean, if I can't come, you can't come. I mean, if you can't come, I can't come. You're thank always you. welcome wherever I am. Oh, sure. thanks, Anasa. Sure. So I really yeah. want to thank you, Anasa, for you know sharing this really powerful, beautiful, amazing mm. story. And also about the work that you're doing and how we can really be in support and in community mm-hmm. with you. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, Anasa. Thank and you. I really love connecting with you. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. You know, you're my favorite. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for this conversation. If you want to learn more about our guests, their work and campaigns, and how to get more engaged, go to medium.com slash and follow us on social media. We would love to hear from you. Kiskadi is executive produced by Bia Vieira, produced by Wanda Costa of Starlet Productions. Original music composed by Maxine Solomon. Original artwork by Yasmin Hernandez, Wanda Costa, and Nicholas Schultz. Graphic illustrations by Kay Dugan Morale of Illustrating Progress. A very special thanks to all of our guests and supporters the Women's Foundation California, the Culture Change Fund, and you.